electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, figure out how days like today could happen. So call me, 1-800-743-CBC, or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You know why I love the stock market? I mean, adore it. Because of days like today, where the Dow surged 527 points, the S&P soared 1.49%, and the NASDAQ pulled 1.54%. Bye, 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 bye. Just two days ago, we were filled with despair. It seemed like everyone on Wall Street figured there'd be no Santa Claus rally this year. The general consensus was that Fed Chief Jay Powell is a total buffoon. They know nothing! He raised rates too fast in 2018, then had to immediately change course right after now. Uh, it's kind of about right about now, right, around Christmas time? He took rates too low in 2020, then he took too long to raise them again this year. Big-time strategists keep coming on air to slaughter the pathetic bulls. Trapped in a ring to be teased and killed for the benefit of a charged-up audience. According to the conventional wisdom, there was just no way out. Either Powell would tighten too hard and destroy the economy, or he'd tighten too little, allowing inflation to persist and destroying our collective purchasing power. Had to be one or the other. At the same time, we were terrified that so much inflation refused to go down, especially wage inflation, that the Fed was trying to crush us. By crushing wage inflation. It's the only way they knew how to do it. I guess you could say it was totally hopeless. To quote those economic titans, McFadden and Whitehead, in their seminal treatise on prices, ain't no stopping us now. We're on the move. And then it all changes. Like a spell has come over the market and we're suddenly in New Orleans saying, laissez-les-bon-temps-roulet. And the good times are rolling for, some, for something the bears don't even want to acknowledge. Excellent quarters from two high-profile companies that were supposed to stink up the joint, Nike and FedEx. Technically, only Nike had a good quarter. FedEx had a better quarter than was better. Uh, had a, let's say a quarter that was better than feared. But 
That's all that mattered. Nike's last few quarters were dreadful, largely because there was too much inventory and not enough shoppers, especially in China, which is a big part of the business. This time, inventory was down, which benefited the Chinese biz immensely. Sales up a surprising 6%, while Europe was good and, of course, America great. This was the reliable Nike of old, just when we thought those days were over. But now Nike's back, and the future's looking brighter, with China finally dropping its nonsensical zero COVID policy. That's how a big cap stock jumps 12% in a single day. For a bull, though, FedEx was even better. Long before the shipping business fell off a cliff this year, FedEx was known for endless revenue growth with constantly disappointing earnings. But now it's got a new CEO, Raj Subramanian, who's doing the opposite. Okay, missing the sales forecast, but crushing the earnings estimates. With the promise of more cost cuts uh, until FedEx gets to the point where they probably try to turn a profit on every single package. And that is a tall, proverbial order. But the company's headed in the direction Wall Street wants, a pleasant surprise given the overall weakness in the freight business. Now let's step back for a second and focus on what's really happened today. Something that I teach every day in my 10.20 a.m. morning meeting for the CMC Investing Club, of course, as well as our bulletins. You've got a whole contingent of professional commentators and money managers who act like nothing matters beyond statements from the Fed and the price levels of the S&P 500. See, they're dead wrong, but that mentally explains why so few of them saw today's rebound coming. So let's go over what happened here. First, even if you only care about the Fed, it's not like we get news from these Fed officials every day. The stock market has the memory know, of a mayfly. So we can't just ruminate on what Jay Powell's up to or how Christine Lagarde, the head of the European Central Bank, is calling for a bunch of 50 basis points rate hikes as she did at the end of last week. That seems like ages ago. The brain doesn't work like that down here. If something's negative and it happened on a Monday, like a blast, the industrials called by David Costin over at Goldman Sachs, great guy, very smart, or the titanic two-part broadside of bearishness from Mike Wilson at Morgan Stanley, those calls mean nothing by Wednesday. Not here. That's not how it works around here. It's just not how it works. Those calls were already baked in. They were baked in by, by yesterday. Second, and more important, are the levels these bears keep calling for. I don't want to be too disparaging, but to counteract their negativity, we ran a special off the charts on Monday with legendary market historian Larry Williams. I don't know if you remember that, but he demonstrated that historically speaking, the market almost always starts going up around December 22nd. Well, when is that? That's tomorrow. His conclusion? Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, I went to him today to explain the earlier arrival. I mean, come on, Santa was here. Thinking maybe Santa wanted to get ahead of the bomb cyclone, a weather term created to generate better cable ratings. Nope, he said, Larry, he said, Larry, and he sent me this chart. It's tough to be a day early and a day short. This year, it was a day early and a day to be long. He also told me uh, it could be uh, Santa Prime getting a jump on brick and mortar retailers. See where this is? Right? It's, no, the, where were the strategists? How come they didn't have this? Uh, I, I don't know. You see, while I'm not always a huge believer in the charts, the fact is there really are patterns that hold up under close scrutiny, and few of them are more reliable than the Santa Claus rally. 
Maybe it's the end of taxless selling. Maybe it's people making one last contribution to their 401k or IRA before the year ends. Maybe it's because the gloom is temporarily lifted, like some sort of weird stock market Christmas carol where bear Scrooge gets religion and embraces the bull. In the end, we don't know why these patterns repeat, okay? We really don't. But we do know it happens almost every year. At the same time, the thing I hate most about these top-down strategists is their insistence that the only thing that really matters is the S&P 500, and that's just one giant bushel of stocks controlled by a peck of bonds. Now, I'm riffing on that song from Guys and Dolls because I got cut from it at high school. The drama teacher didn't like me, in part because of the girl I was dating, I think, at the same time. It had nothing to do with my singing voice. All right, back on topic. Stocks are not just bushels of wheat or bales of hay or any other kind of grain varietal. They are Huge differences between individual companies. John Donner, CEO of Nike, Raj Subramaniam, CEO of FedEx, aren't strands of hay that could be swapped out for any other executive. You see, they're real humans who have rallied the troops and come up with better than expected numbers. Let me put it another way. We don't trade the NFL, right? We follow individual teams. When a team gets a new coach like the formerly awful Giants and replace them with a brilliant everyman like Coach Dable, only to become excellent almost immediately with the same cast of characters, we accept that leadership matters. But you don't need to know the overall level of NFL play. That's meaningless. Same goes for the overall level of the S&P 500. It's much less relevant than identifying the stocks of companies that are poised to put up stronger numbers. Now the Santa Claus rally may be here today and going tomorrow, although Larry Williams statistics say that's unlikely. What matters, though, is this wonderful, magical thing we call the market can resist the sirens of negativity and just get it done. Like any underdog can. No, it's not any given Sunday, and not just because it's a Wednesday. But at the bottom line, as much as the overall situation can lend itself to despair after a year in bearish territory, perhaps there are term limits to the bear market, even if it's just a brutal interregnum between unhappy grizzlies in Jellystone National Park. Let's take questions. Let's go to Tyler in California. Tyler. Hey, Jim. Big Booyah from California. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you, Tyler? I'm doing great. I'll keep it real quick for you. What do you think of Salesforce, CRM? All right. Now, for the Travel Trust today, we bought some. We sent out Jeff Marks and I sent out, I think, a terrific letter just saying, you know what, we sold some much higher. It's okay at this point. Not great. We don't expect blowout numbers. But we do think that in the end, this company's worth more than it's currently selling. All right. On Mad Money tonight, we're taking a closer look at this year's Horrible performance in the technology sector revealing a few ideas. I think you could do pretty well in 2023. Then PG&E is on a mission to recreate the business and make it stronger for the future. And I'm learning more about where they stand with the company's top brass. And how does the real estate sector fare in 2022? I'm taking a closer look at the cohort and seeing if next year could be a winner for a handful of names. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Before we can look ahead to 2023, we need to look back on what worked and what didn't over the course of 2022. That's why I've spent the last week and a half going through the S&P 500 sector by sector, highlighting both the biggest winners and the most intriguing stories for the year ahead. You need this because you need the context. We've been going in descending order of performance, energy, then the utilities, consumer staples, healthcare, and industrials last week, and then the weaker sectors this week, the material stocks on Monday, the financials last night, and now we're really scraping the bottom of the sector bow. Looking at the eighth and ninth place performers, technology now, and then the real estate later in the show. Whoa! Needless to say, this has been an awful year for technology. With the average tech stock in the S&P down more than 23%, and these are the stronger tech names, the larger, more profitable companies with stocks that have held up much better than their younger peers in the Nasdaq. This sector is caught between a rock and a hard place. High inflation erodes the value of their future earnings, and most of these things trade on the future. But when the Fed raises interest rates to beat, to, uh, beat inflation, tech valuations plummet, in part because the rich valuations were actually symptoms of inflation. That's actually just a chart of inflation in reverse. Now, tech remains the largest sector in the S&P, both by weighting, it accounts for more than 26% of the index, and that's a real problem for the index itself, and by the number of components, as there are 75 tech stocks in the index. Like the other catch-all sectors, tech's full of diverse subgroups, but this, this year, nearly all of them have done poorly. We have seen some relative outperformance in the old techs. IBM's up more than 6% for the year, putting it in fourth place. The payments companies like MasterCard and Visa haven't done that badly. Although I question actually, I mean, are they really tech? But other than that, 67 of the 75 tech stocks, the S&P 500, are down double digits for the year. What a terrible place. Almost everything in the semiconductor complex has been hit hard, as chip shortages at the beginning of the year turned to chip gluts once demand started disappearing. Think about Micron this evening. 
still a chip glut. In fact, anything hardware-related has been slammed, including Kramer fave Apple, down 24% for the year on China lockdown woes. And yes, I still insist on owning it, not trading it. But again, I keep telling you that at the beginning of the month, it's going to be a little rough because they haven't had enough supply. Of course, nothing's been worse than software. Microsoft down 27%, Adobe down 40%, Salesforce.com almost 50%. And again, these S&P components are the good ones compared to the software carnage in the NASDAQ. The S&P 500 has strict criteria for membership. You can't just join the index without a sustained period of profitability. It's tougher to get into than the Elks. But even these well-run, profitable software names have been obliterated. Can the tech sector make a comeback? Sure. Eventually, at least for some groups, I think. I mean, I think the semis can bottom in maybe a quarter or two. Maybe the glut ends, and then they have a chance to rebound late, late next year. Some of the hardware plays will soon face much easier comparisons. That matters. Even the higher-quality software stocks will eventually find their footing. But this environment remains incredibly hostile to tech, so you got to be very careful. Still, some tech stocks managed to work this year. When you look at the breakdown, the top two performers were actually solar plays. Again, the tech rubric encompasses, I think, too much. But Enphase Energy up 73%, and Solar Edge Technologies in a very distant second up 15%. Honestly, to me, these are really more industrial plays than tech stocks. Enphase mostly makes what are known as inverters, which transform solar energy into usable electricity. They also make software to run the whole system and batteries to store power for when the sun goes down. I've been recommending this one for ages because I think it's been a great way to play the growth of residential solar. I'd much rather buy Enphase than bet on the solar panel makers because that space is much more competitive than, yes, of course, the Chinese have been known to dump panels. As for Solar Edge, it also makes inverters. Uh, while the stock hasn't performed as well as Enphase, which very few have, it's a lot cheaper here. In my view, both companies are profitable and they're getting a major boost from the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Huge solar subsidies in there. If you want solar exposure, you could do a heck of a lot worse than either of these. Next up, the third best performing tech stock in the S&P this year is Jack Henry and Associates. Okay, I, really, I know it sounds like a really good Tennessee uh, you know, bourbon or something. Tennessee whiskey, Kentucky bourbon. Uh, it, it's relatively unknown financial technology play. They sell their software and solutions to banks, credit unions, and other fintech outfits. It's a neat little company. It's all about helping traditional financial institutions offer their customers better services and operate more smoothly through digitization. Again, look at tech. It doesn't really do anything, right? I mean, it's not like some of those that you just want like that, but it's better than nothing. More importantly, unlike so many other digitizers, Jack Henry is very profitable, which is why its stock could rally nearly 6% in a year where most fintech names got killed, sometimes deservedly. While the stock pulled back more than 30 bucks from its highs over the summer, it's still not exactly cheap. I'd love to wait for more of a pullback in Jack Henry, but I don't know if we're going to get one. So you got my blessing to put on a small position right here, but remember, it's not talked about much, and you have to do a lot of work on it. Looking down the list of best performers in tech, we don't find a classic tech stock until fourth place, and that's IBM, also up almost 6%. You know I'm a big fan of CEO Arvind Krishna, who's worked hard to transform this company by spinning off its legacy-managed infrastructure business as Kindrel and focusing on faster-growing businesses. That's how IBM posted 15% revenue growth last quarter on constant currency basis. Very impressive for what used to be a growth-starved company. Even better, they're paying you to wait for the real turnaround, which I think will happen, uh, with that bountiful 4.6% yield. Beyond the top performers, I've got three old tech plays that I like going into 2023. Oracle, Broadcom, and Palo Alto Networks. 
Now, Oracle just turned it into a magnificent quarter last Monday, didn't get nearly the credit it should have. 25% cost and currency revenue growth with a nice earnings beat, and the stock sells for less than 17 times earnings. CEO Safra Katz and founder Larry Ellison are so good. The new Cerner acquisition is so great. This is almost a crime against humanity that this stock is so cheap. I can't be sanguine about it anymore. I think that this thing has got a very durable business, and I think it should be bought. You've had that. Okay, now you're here, and I think you go here, all right? Now, next up is Broadcom, and this is different. This is a former pure-play semiconductor company that's diversified into a broader range of hardware and software. They reported a good quarter earlier this month, and they're on track to acquire VMware in a transformational deal that will give them a lot more data center exposure, which matters to me. That transaction might take some time to get regulatory approval. But in the meantime, Broadcom's paying you the weight. It's got 3.3% yield. Stock's incredibly cheap, 14 times earnings. By the way, they just gave you a 12% dividend boost, which is not something you do when business is deteriorating. They also rolled out a $10 billion buyback. While the stock's down 16% this year, I think this is the rare pullback that gives you a nice entry point. If the semis contract tomorrow, if there's still one more missed quarter by Micron, you might be getting a chance to do some Broadcom buying at a price probably maybe around here. Last but not least is really a very different kind of company. We're talking about cybersecurity, and that's Palo Alto Networks. Now, why does this one not really count in my whole survey? Because it's not actually a member of the S&P 500. But it is the single best-run cybersecurity company by far. And I have a lot of faith in the long-term staying power of that business. Last month, Palo Alto reported a great quarter, tremendous profitability, just a monster earnings beat, coupled with a very strong earnings forecast for the current quarter. That's exactly what we want to see from these tech stocks. You used to get it all the time from everybody. They've dropped their growth at all cost mentality for profitable growth only mentality, which I really care about. The stock's now hovering above its 52-week lows, and I recommend picking up some, some now right here. Uh, maybe a little more into weakness. I know that there was a firm this morning came out and said that lately business is, is somewhat soft. I don't know. Maybe that's why you get it down here. Let me give you the bottom line. This has been a hard year for tech. And I'm betting things will stay ugly in 2023, at least through the first half of the year. For every IBM or Oracle or Broadcom, there are dozens of tech stocks, particularly the enterprise software stocks, that remain downright untouchable. Man, money's back after the break. Coming up, hop off the grid and on the trail of profits. Kramer sits down for a powerful interview with a major utility. Next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. 
Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Last week, we ran through the best-performing stocks and the best-performing sectors over the past year. And one of them truly surprised me, PG&E, the California-based utility, is the second-biggest winner in the second-strongest group. PG&E is now up more than 31% for the year, which is shocking because this company used to be a horrible operator. So bad, they were forced to declare bankruptcy a few years ago. Their equipment kept causing wildfires. They were overwhelmed by the resulting liabilities. But now, PG&E is under new management, and when you throw in the lack of any major incidents this year, the stock's being able to put up a strong performance. They might even be able to bring back the dividend someday. I wanted to hear more about the turnaround for the company itself, which is why I issued an invitation to management last Tuesday. Luckily, they accepted. So earlier today, I got a chance to speak with Pat. Poppy. She's the impressive new CEO of PG&E, who took over early last year. Take a look. Patty, you have reinvented a company that a lot of people feel has a great deal of risk and isn't the kind of utility that they want to own. And I want to give you the floor because it's remarkable what you've done and how you've changed things. Well, Jim, first, I need to let you know that we've met once. We, we met at Roots in Summit, New Jersey, in 2015. I don't know if you, I'm sure you don't remember was, this. Was I but polite? My, you, you were polite, but my sister who was with me and only like a big sister can do, told you that you should remember my name. She, she, I guess we probably weren't that memorable, but she, she told you, Patty Pop, you go to places, Jim you. be on your show someday. And oh. here I am. Well, with that with that mistake and not polite way to start the interview. Anyway, you've done a pretty good job here turning it around. Yeah, you know, Jim, we have a very deliberate plan to drive down both physical risk and financial risk at the company. And I just want to start with the physical risk related to wildfire. A lot of people have questions about that. We have implemented what we call our layers of protection that have mitigated over 90% of the wildfire risk in our area. We have tools to help mitigate wildfire risk in the short term, like right now, our safety settings instantaneously and automatically shut off power in high fire threat areas within a tenth of a second if something hits the line, because that's what starts a fire, whether a branch or a bird, something hits a line. And as a result, this year, you'll be happy to know Even though we had a 36% increase in the number of high-risk days because of the drought, this technology we've deployed had a 99% decrease in the number of acres burned. We are having real results. And longer term, we're super excited to talk about the long-term plan to underground our power lines. We've embarked on a 10,000-mile undergrounding project that we think of as climate-resilient infrastructure. We expect more and more utilities to be considering the same as we have to adapt our infrastructure to meet the changing climate. Now, and, you know, a lot how of are you going to have the money? Me, how do you have the money to well, do that? Exactly. You have 8 million trees next to the power lines. When I met you, I remember asking you about that. Well, okay. Maybe yeah, the last yeah. part's not true. <laughs> Maybe Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people say, isn't it too expensive? It's the first question. The reality is it's too expensive not to underground the lines. Those strike trees, we spend $1.7 billion a year removing trees. And I say, let's save the trees, bury the lines. I like that. Now, also, you have been committed to allowing people who do solar to um, net surplus, make it so it's a pretty good business to, um, to make it so that the environment is better. 
Well, you know, we're big fans of solar. We think it's an important, it plays a very important role. And distributed solar is a, a good resilience play, but particularly when paired with the bi-directional charging vehicles of the future. We're very bullish on the role that electric vehicles play as a source of storage to match that solar because the only dis downside of solar is the sun doesn't shine at night. And so sometimes people want electricity when it's dark. That's what these batteries can provide. They can provide uh, the ability to charge the battery of a car with the sun and then discharge that energy whenever people want it 24-7. All right, so if I own a new Ford F-150 that's an EV, you would be my partner. Oh, for sure. We're big fans of the Ford Lightning. I, Jim Farley is one of my favorite people. Uh, we've got a partnership with Ford. We've also got a strong partnership with General Motors and Tesla, making sure that these electric vehicles are in a position to provide both the transportation resource, decarbonized transportation, but what I call the triple stack. It's got the triple stack benefit of one, decarbonizing transportation, which is the number one source of carbon emissions, at least in my service area. And then two, we've got uh, the resilience play. And then on a peak hot summer day, we can discharge those batteries so they act like little mini power plants. It's a game changer. The additional demand for electricity from EVs is probably one of the greatest things that will happen to the grid. People say to me, oh, is the grid ready? Not only is the grid ready, the grid needs EVs. Those EVs will be a resource to the grid and create a, a low cost, clean energy resource. It's a, a total game changer, and we're at the forefront at PGE. Well, let me ask you, I was there at the creation of Diablo Canyon, which I remember very well, versus the particular haze that I have during another year. And to me, it was the greatest thing in the world. And then it got hated. Uh, I lived next to uh, Rancho Seco in Sacramento, which everyone hated. Somehow you've been able to recreate Diablo Canyon in a way that it's not going to be closed and it produces a huge amount of electricity. Were you able to change people's minds about the safety of nuclear power? Well, I think there's been a massive effort. I can't take credit for changing everyone's minds, but I can take credit for being privileged to lead the team at Diablo Canyon because of their performance. People regained confidence and trust in the safety of uh, nuclear energy. And it might surprise you, just first, a kind of a high-level statistic, you know, PG&E, we're already on the front line of delivering GHG-free energy. Last year, 93% of the electricity we delivered at PG&E to over our 16 million customers was GHG-free, a big chunk of that from Diablo Canyon. And, and I know you love nuclear power, Jim. Uh, my father built nuclear power plants, so I was kind of born for this time, and he's very happy up in heaven thinking about us ex extending Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. Uh, we were in this early stages of decommissioning, as you said, but we were um, granted one of the DOE uh, grants from the state, uh, started by the state of California requesting and encouraging us to consider. And then uh, we have to give some gratitude to Energy Secretary Granholm and the DOE for selecting Diablo Canyon as the only plant for the phase one of the DOE grants to extend the lives of nuclear power plants. And so we're the beneficiaries, as are the people of California. And we are so proud uh, at Diablo Canyon to, to serve this GHG free power to the people okay. of California. One last question. Uh, the Fire Victim Trust obviously has a duty to the people uh, who are victims, but it also uh, is selling the stock uh, of a company that I feel is radically undervalued because of its CEO and what she's doing. Does that play a role at all of how great a job you're doing, or are they just going to keep selling? You know, I think um, 
we have a shared commitment with the fire victims. They are executing the trust that was part of a negotiated agreement that occurred before I came uh, to dispatch the the uh, dollars to the victims of previous fires by uh, selling stock in PG&E. I think that it's um, important that we make it right and we make it safe. And by the Fire Victims Trust selling that stock, that just creates room for longer term, long term holders, your uh, viewers to get into the stock. Uh, look, we're a, a back to basics uh, utility. We've got a lot of headroom in our stock valuation. Uh, I, I have trust that the Fire Victims Trust will sell when they need to, uh, to make sure that we fulfill their commitment to serving the, the victims. Um, but, you know, there's one thing really important for your viewers to know, Jim, before we go. You know, as you have said many times, utilities are, in fact, a flight to safety in choppy economic times. And we at PCG, which is our ticker, PCG, at PG&E are trading off about 30 percent to the utility sector. So we're a double benefit, not only as we enter the choppy waters, I think a lot of people see 2023 as a really mm -hmm. challenging economic year. Utilities are a flight to safety. PCG is a double flight to safety because we have headroom to grow. So if you're going to own one utility stock, I think this is the one with the most upside. Things uh, are looking really bright. PG I think I have to agree with you. After talking to you, I know I agree with you. I want to thank uh, Patty Poppy, who's the CEO of PG&E. Magnificent job. I'm so glad you came on the show. Thank you, Jim. I'll come back anytime. Wow. Coming up, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth and some reliable gains. Real estate is under Kramer's microscope. Next. for the holidays, we're going through every sector in the S&P 500, shining a light on the best performing stocks this year and the ones that look the most promising for next year. So you can make some money, make some adjustments. Earlier tonight, I told you we're scraping the bottom of the barrel with tech. And now it's time to scrape a little deeper with real estate. As bad as tech's been with the technology uh, select sector SPDR or Spider Fund, the XLK, down 26%, real estate's even worse. With the real estate select spider uh, sector down 28%, and that's the XLRE, if you want to try to take a gander at that one. Coming into 2022, Wall Street actually felt pretty good about real estate because many of these stocks are real estate investment trusts, and they got high dividends. We know that the real estate stocks get ugly whenever the Federal Reserve raises interest rates aggressively because each rate hike makes mortgages more expensive. And it also makes it difficult to compete to. Uh, it's a good competition, right? Like treasuries. It didn't dawn on this market that it would be a disaster for the real estate stocks until inflation went crazy the spring and summer and the Fed started tightening the most aggressively I've ever seen. Lately, most areas of the real estate universe have gotten increasingly ugly. Residential housing was on fire for nearly two years, but then it peaked several months ago, and now it's rolling over. But get this. We just found out that existing home sales were down 7.7% month over month in November. That's an extraordinary decline. Even consistent real estate investment trusts have gone out of style in the Wall Street fashion show. The cell tower REITs that I used to like so much started getting hammered when AT&T and Verizon began to look financially overstretched. The data center REITs have been hit as the growth of the entire cloud computing cohort has slowed. The industrial logistics REITs have tumbled on e-commerce worries. And of course, the retail real estate investment trusts have been awful. 
as the retailers get hit. Things will look even worse as the economy slows down. And then, by the way, if, if the Christmas season isn't better than it is, my God, these are really going to be bad. The office suites were already dogs thanks to the rise of the remote work conundrum, right? I mean, you only need them, if you only need to come in three days a week, you don't need a big tower. This year, they've been continuing. They're still plummeting. Honestly, they may even be worse than the software stocks, and that's saying something. So many jobs have become permanently remote uh, or, or permanently hybrid that businesses need less and less office space, even as most people are back to working in person. If you're downtown, you keep seeing all these places converted into residential, but that's downtown New York. There's all these other cities in America. When you look at the performance of the 31 real estate stocks in the SP 500, <laughs> this is amazing. Only one of them is up for the year, and that's Kramer fave Vici Properties, right? Among the rest, 28 are down double digits. This group's been a horror show. So what can we learn from the three top performers? Let's take them down. Vici Properties is a company we've liked for a long time. They're a real estate investment trust that owns the land under casinos, golf courses, and even a wellness retreat, Canyon Ranch. Maybe you've seen the ads. I've pounded the table in the stock repeatedly, and now it's up about 9% for the year, which is pretty impressive given that the average has been crushed and every other REIT's in the doghouse. What's the secret of the success to Vici? Well, it's simple. It's a safe way to play the travel and gambling boom with a healthcare kicker. Canyon Ranch. Uh, By the way, I went to that place. I couldn't even get a beer. Remember, people are still desperate to go to places because we spent two years stuck at home, which is why the numbers in Vegas remain incredible. Vici used to own 50% of the real estate under the MGM Grand in Mandalay Bay. They just bought the other 50% from Blackstone's struggling private REIT. It seems like it's kind of desperate to raise money. Uh, I, I like that Vegas exposure. Unlike Fiji, most of the actual casino stocks also have a ton of exposure to Macau, the Chinese gambling haven that's struggling, given all the restrictions imposed by the regime because of COVID. Plus, even if there's a slowdown in Vegas, Fiji's the landlord here. They'll be the last to feel the pain. Stock currently sells for 14 times next year's funds from operation. That's the key metric for REITs. And it supports a juicy 4.8% yield. I would be a buyer of Vici properties right here. Next up, the second best performing real estate investment trust is Iron Mountain down roughly 3%. You might remember we highlighted this one back in October. Iron Mountain used to be a paper document management business. Business warehouses full of filing cabins. But years ago, they realized there's no future in paper, so they transitioned to highly secure data centers. Now, they're also doing something called asset lifecycle management, meaning they carefully help their clients destroy their old hardware to make sure all the old data gets wiped out. How about asset lifecycle mortuaries? Isn't that, isn't that more accurate? Iron Mountain's stock pulled back hard in September after management made it clear they planned to invest heavily in their ongoing transformation. I told you that was a buying opportunity, and sure enough, the stocks rebounded from those lows. At these levels, though, Iron Mountain sells for just 16 times next year's funds from operation with a battle of 4.9% yield. I still like it. The third best performing real estate stock is pitiful in that it's down almost 9% for the year. I'm talking about host hotels and resorts. Pretty good company. Largest lodging REIT in the world. Focus on upscale properties. Like Fiji, the relative strength here is all about the the travel boom. I'm not entirely against owning host hotels, as it's an ultra-cheap. It's it's less than nine times funds from operations. Solid dividend. That said, if you want lodging exposure, I'd much rather go with the hotels themselves, especially Marriott International, which is, what, which is one of the host's largest tenants, and it's a really well-run company. Beyond the paltry top performers, there are three real estate stocks that I very much like for 2023. There's Realty Income, 
federal realty and pro-lodges. Realty income mostly owns retail properties, but I think these retail REITs have been punished excessively. You're now getting a good chance to buy the best ones at a discount. This has really come down a lot. I also love it. It's so simple. The letter O. I know that's meaningless, but I like it. Uh, it, what are their clients? Well, it's pretty recession-proof. Dollar General. I love my Dollar General, by the way. I mean, absolutely love it. Walgreens, 7-Eleven, Dollar Tree. Don't like it as much anymore. And, and FedEx. Lots of recession-resistant franchises there. Best of all, this company's a dividend machine. They pay a monthly dividend. People love to get a monthly distribution and tend to raise it multiple times a year. Currently, the stock yields 4.6%. I really like this one. Next up is Federal Realty. It's Dom Wood's company. It specializes in mixed-use properties, combination residential, office space, and retail. What sets it apart is location. Most of these properties are in wealthy suburbs, which tends to somewhat insulate them from economic weakness. I also like the mixed-use combination. Plus, Federal Realty's got just that terrific leadership that I mentioned uh, from a guy who comes on the show in good and bad times, and that is Dom Wood, the CEO. While the stock hasn't done well this year, well, it's been a terrific long-term holding. And it's paying you to wait with a 4.2% yield. Finally, there's a company that seems like it's in the doghouse right now. It's called Prologis, a logistics REIT that's been obliterated this year. It's down 32%. This stock got hit hard this spring when Amazon made some comments about how they'd overbuilt their logistics capacity. And it never really came back from when Amazon said, you know what, we have too much capacity. You know, I think that Amazon's been hurt badly by the fact that they do. And that's now Prologis is also being hurt because it's doubling down on its business. It's acquiring Duke Realty, another logistics REIT. But that wholesale sell-off is based purely on vibes. When you look at the results, they remain fantastic. Prologis, which you've had on a bunch of times, had a 97.7% occupancy rate last quarter for MSA. That's the metric I care about. I'm a big believer in this business long-term, and I think the stock's come down to the point where it's very enticing, trading just 20 times next year's funds from operations. Still a fast grower, I still think that when Amazon rationalizes, you'll want to own Prologis. Here's the bottom line. The real estate stocks have been humbled this year, and I think this continues in 2023. It could get worse if the Fed doesn't see the warning signs and keeps tightening as aggressive as it has. But there are still some legitimately good stories like Kramer Fave Vici or Iron Mountain, along with some high-quality long-term performers that have suddenly got real cheap, like Realty Income, Letter O, Federal Realty, and Prologis. Net money's back in Coming up, Kramer wants to hear from you. Your calls on the thunderous lightning round. Next. It is time. Time for the lightning round. Because we're back first one of the Tony And the lightning round's over. Are you ready to keep that? Time for the lightning round. Because we're going to start with JD in Colorado. JD. Oh, yeah. I was asking about the movie theater next year in 2020. Uh, you know what? We're going to take a pass on that. $5 is where it should be and no higher. Let's go to Nick in Connecticut. Nick. Jim, how are you? I am good. How about you? Good, thank you. Happy holidays to you and your family. Same. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts might be on a company called Technoglass, TGLS. Very smart, very good company. You usually don't get asked about it. It's got... Uh, good hub for our infrastructure, uh, and I think that I would buy it if it came in a little bit. It's had a very big run. Let's go to Patrick in New Mexico. Patrick. Booyah, Jim. I'm calling from beautiful Santa Fe. Thanks for taking my call, sir. Oh, bet you it's still light out there. It's kind of dark, getting to a very dark, your short day. What's going on? 
Please, please tell me what you think of my stock, LPI, Laredo. Laredo's a second-rate oil producer. I prefer very much that you buy Pioneer PXD, which I think is much stronger, and the chapel shot zones. We're not done. We're going to Dave, Dave in Illinois. Dave! Dr. Kramer, my mad Eagles beaten Bears friend. My stock is best in class. Return on equity at nine times. The Linkster and I like D.R. Horton. I think Horton's a very good choice, but, you know, they all do trade together. Toll's good, too, but I think that Dr. Dave, and I reciprocate in the degree, I think you're right, 25 to 20, and Horton both work for me. Let's go to Carson in California. Carson. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. Booyah, the chill man's in the house. What's going on? Uh, my question is about a stock that's got a return on equity of 38% and is trading at a P.E. of 6.5. The name is Mastercraft Boat Holdings. I think that's a good company. We're more familiar with Brunswick, B.C. It's a little bit more expensive, but we like it a lot. And that, Legend, inclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, help wanted one full-time CEO. Who can make this bird fly? And work with Elon Musk. Kramer dives on in next. It is time. It is time for Elon Musk to bring in a new CEO of Twitter even though he insists nobody in the right mind would want that job. That's a very good point, which is why I'm officially taking myself out of the running right here, right now. Of course, he can't just hire someone immediately. Other than Brett Taylor, the former chairman of Twitter, who recently stepped down as co-CEO of Salesforce, I can't think of another executive who's ever stood up to Musk and won. It was Brett who went toe-to-toe with him in Delaware court keep him from backing out of the deal, giving Twitter shareholders such a huge, and you could imagine after the stock, let's just say if the business turned out so much, an undeserving windfall. We know that Musk didn't really want to buy Twitter in the first place, at least not after he did his homework. Unfortunately, he'd already sealed the deal at that point. I don't think he wanted to run Twitter either, bowing to the wishes of a user base that voted to oust him this weekend, including me. But he does want to stick around in the kind of product role, kind of, kind of like Kevin Plank, the founder and former CEO of Under Armour, who just agreed to continue as a key strategist after appointing Stephanie Linnertz as CEO this very evening. Second time, it may be a charm. Personally, if I were headhunting for a new CEO of Twitter, I'd want to bring in Kevin Systrom. He's the founder of Instagram, a really cool guy who knows exactly what people want out of technology. He'd be a tremendous choice, one of, one of those rare Silicon Valley bigwigs who possesses more than a shred of humility. There is a hilarious mock poll going on right now on the drafting site that has everyone being talked, talked about and joked about as CEO, except for, of course, Samuel Bankman fried I can't believe he didn't make it there. I want you to go to my Twitter account, at Jim Kramer, to see the hilarious contenders of this mock poll. Honestly, though, it, it, at this point, it, it'd be okay with I, I'd be okay with anyone taking over Twitter. Musk just needs a warm body. He, even that's negotiable if he can pull off a weekend at Bernie's situation. Every second he spends at Twitter is a second he's not spending at Tesla, and Tesla's a much better business. Unfortunately, it can't run on autopilot. 
For the first time in its history, Tesla's up against real competition. So it could really benefit from something closer to a full-time CEO. Let's think about some of these things. Consider, for instance, the brand new Lucid Air that hit Germany and the Netherlands today. Limited edition, but it gets 514 miles per charge, whereas Tesla gets 405 miles at most. There's the new BMW i7, a luxury electric sedan. While it may not have Tesla specs, this thing dominates when it comes to comfort in the back seat and handling in the front, making it ideal for chauffeured cars, perfect plaything for the rich. More importantly, though, Ford and GM are ready to roll in the electric space en masse in scale. We spoke to Mary Barr, the CEO of GM, not that long ago, and she's got a multitude of electric cars and trucks coming, uh, including the already sold-out electric Hummer. When my wife test drove one, she said it was mind-blowing. That's the one that can crab walk. The real volume challenger, though, is Ford. From the end of last year through this November, Tesla's market share has dropped from just under 72%, still staggering, to just under 66%, still staggering. While Ford's market share has jumped from 5.5% to 7.5%. On a percentage basis, that's a big jump. And Ford's actually just getting started. Next year, they're expanding their electric product line like crazy. As CEO Jim Farley told me, quote, our capacity is expanding a lot. Mustang Mach-E doubles in first quarter. Lightning doubles in Q3. That's their uh, F-150 truck. We then add new capacity in Europe for two new models. By this time next year, we should uh, go from 15,000 capacity per month to 50,000 per month. And Ford will break out their numbers, including their profitability or lack thereof. While most old school automakers bury their electric businesses because it's their electric losses within their overall internal combustion business. That's a big reason why we own it for the Travel Trust, which you can follow along by simply joining the CMC Investing Club. Look, Tesla has a huge lead. They're the best automaker in the world. But a century ago, Ford was the best automaker in the world. Anyone can catch up to anyone. I never thought Ford would be topped. So if only for Tesla's ailing shareholders with the stock down 60% for the year, I'm begging Elon Musk to hurry back from Twitter. His time is too valuable to waste. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.